Chapter 3, Part 2 of the Formation of Vegetable Molds Through the Action of Worms with Observations on Their Habits by Charles Darwin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3, Part 2 The Amount of Fine Earth Brought Up by Worms to the Surface The Sinking of Great Stones Through the Action of Worms When a stone of large size and of irregular shape is left on the surface of the ground, it rests, of course, on the more protuberant parts. But worms soon fill up with their castings all the hollow spaces on the lower side, for, as Hansen remarks, they like the shelter of stones. As soon as the hollows are filled up, the worms eject the earth which they have swallowed beyond the circumference of the stones, and thus the surface of the ground is raised all round the stone. As the burrows excavated directly beneath the stone, after a time collapse, the stone sinks a little. Footnote. This conclusion, which, as we shall see, is fully justified, is of some little importance, as the so-called bench stones, which surveyors fix in the ground as a record of their levels, may in time become false standards. My son Horace intends at some future period to ascertain how far this has occurred. Hence, it is, that boulders which at some ancient period have rolled down from a rocky mountain or cliff onto a meadow at its base are always somewhat embedded in the soil, and when removed, leave an exact impression of their lower surfaces in the underlying fine mould. If, however, a boulder is of such huge dimensions that the earth beneath is kept dry, such earth will not be inhabited by worms, and the boulder will not sink into the ground. A lime-kiln formerly stood in a grass-field near Leith Hill Place in Surrey, and was pulled down thirty-five years before my visit. All the loose rubbish had been carted away, except three large stones of quartzos sandstone, which it was thought might hereafter be of some use. An old workman remembered that they had been left on a bare surface of broken bricks and mortar, close to the foundations of the kiln but the whole surrounding surface is now covered with turf and mould. The two largest of these stones had never since been moved, nor could this easily have been done, as, when I had them removed, it was the work of two men with levers. One of these stones, and not the largest, was sixty-four inches long, seventeen inches broad, and from nine to ten inches in thickness. Its lower surface was somewhat protuberant in the middle, and this part still rested on broken bricks and mortar, showing the truth of the old workman's account. Beneath the brick rubbish the natural sandy soil, full of fragments of sandstone, was found, and this could have yielded very little, if at all, to the weight of the stone, as might have been expected if the subsoil had been clay. The surface of the field, for a distance of about nine inches round the stone, gradually sloped up to it, and close to the stone stood in most places about four inches above the surrounding ground. The base of the stone was buried from one to two inches beneath the general level, and the upper surface projected about eight inches above this level, or about four inches above the sloping border of turf. After the removal of the stone, it became evident that one of its pointed ends must at first have stood clear above the ground by some inches, but its upper surface was now on a level with the surrounding turf. When the stone was removed, an exact cast of its lower side, forming a shallow crateriform hollow, was left, 
the inner surface of which consisted of a fine black mould, excepting where the more protuberant parts rested on the brick rubbish. A transverse section of this stone, together with its bed, drawn from measurements made after it had been displaced, is here given on a scale of one-half inch to a foot, figure six. Legend figure six. Transverse section across a large stone, which had lain on a grass field for thirty-five years. A. A. A general level of the field. The underlying brick rubbish has not been represented. Scale, one-half inch to one foot. End of legend. The turf-covered border, which sloped up to the stone, consisted of fine vegetable mould, in one part seven inches in thickness. This evidently consisted of worm castings, several of which had been recently ejected. The whole stone had sunk in thirty-five years, as far as I could judge, about one and one-half inch, and this must have been due to the brick rubbish beneath the more protuberant parts having been undermined by worms. At this rate, the upper surface of the stone, if it had been left undisturbed, would have sunk to the general level of the field in two hundred and forty-seven years. But before this could have occurred, some earth would have been washed down by heavy rain from the castings on the raised border of turf over the upper surface of the stone. The second stone was larger than the one just described, viz. sixty-seven inches in length, thirty-nine in breadth, and fifteen in thickness. The lower surface was nearly flat, so that the worms must soon have been compelled to eject their castings beyond its circumference. The stone as a whole had sunk about two inches into the ground. At this rate it would have required two hundred and sixty-two years for its upper surface to have sunk to the general level of the field. The upward-sloping, turf-covered border round the stone was broader than in the last case, viz. from fourteen to sixteen inches and why this should be so I could see no reason. In most parts, this border was not so high as in the last case, viz., from two to two and a half inches, but in one place it was as much as five and one half. Its average height, close to the stone, was probably about three inches, and it thinned out to nothing. If so, a fine layer of earth, fifteen inches in breadth and one and one half inch in average thickness, of sufficient length to surround the whole of the much elongated slab must have been brought up by the worms in the chief part from beneath the stone in the course of thirty-five years. This amount would be amply sufficient to account for its having sunk about two inches into the ground, more especially if we bear in mind that a good deal of the finest earth would have been washed by heavy rain from the castings ejected on the sloping border down to the level of the field. Some fresh castings were seen close to the stone. Nevertheless, on digging a large hole to a depth of eighteen inches, where the stone had lain, only two worms and a few burrows were seen, although the soil was damp and seemed favorable for worms. There were some large colonies of ants beneath the stone, and possibly since their establishment the worms had decreased in number. The third stone was only about half as large as the others, and two strong boys could together have rolled it over. I have no doubt that it had been rolled over at a moderately recent time, for it now lay at some distance from the two other stones at the bottom of a little adjoining slope. It rested also on fine earth, instead of partly on brick rubbish. In agreement with this conclusion, 
the raised surrounding border of the turf was only one inch high in some parts and two inches in other parts there were no colonies of ants beneath this stone and on digging a hole where it had lain several burrows and worms were found at stonehenge some of the outer druidical stones are now prostrate having fallen at a remote but unknown period and these have become buried to a moderate depth in the ground they are surrounded by sloping borders of turf on which recent castings were seen close to one of these fallen stones which was seventeen feet long six feet broad and twenty-eight and one-half inches thick a hole was dug and here the vegetable mould was at least nine and one-half inches in thickness at this depth a flint was found and a little higher up on one side of the hole a fragment of glass the base of the stone lay about nine and one-half inches beneath the level of the surrounding ground and its upper surface nineteen inches above the ground a hole was also dug close to a second huge stone which in falling had broken into two pieces and this must have happened long ago judging from the weathered aspect of the fractured ends the base was buried to a depth of ten inches as was ascertained by driving an iron skewer horizontally into the ground beneath it the vegetable mould forming the turf-covered slope border round the stone on which many castings had been recently ejected was ten inches in thickness and most of this mould must have been brought up by worms from beneath its base at a distance of eight yards from the stone the mould was only five and one-half inches in thickness with a piece of tobacco pipe at a depth of four inches and this rested on broken flint and chalk which could not have easily yielded to the pressure or weight of the stone a straight rod was fixed horizontally by the aid of a spirit level across a third fallen stone which was seven feet nine inches long and the contour of the projecting parts and of the adjoining ground which was not quite level was thus ascertained as shown in the accompanying diagram figure seven on a scale of one half inch to a foot legend to figure seven section through one of the fallen druidical stones at stonehenge showing how much it had sunk into the ground scale one half inch to one foot the turf-covered border sloped up to the stone on one side to a height of four inches and on the opposite side to only two and one-half inches above the general level a hole was dug on the eastern side and the base of the stone was here found to lie at a depth of four inches beneath the general level of the ground and of eight inches beneath the top of the sloping turf-covered border sufficient evidence has now been given showing that small objects left on the surface of the land where worms abound soon get buried and that large stones sink slowly downwards through the same means every step of the process could be followed from the accidental deposition of a single casting on a small object lying loose on the surface to its being entangled amidst the matted roots of the turf and lastly to its being embedded in the mould at various depths beneath the surface when the same field was re-examined after the interval of a few years such objects were found at a greater depth than before the straightness and regularity of the lines formed by the embedded objects and their parallelism with the surface of the land are the most striking features of the case for this parallelism shows how equably the worms must have worked the result being however partly the effect of the washing down of the fresh castings by rain the specific gravity of the objects 
does not affect their rate of sinking, as could be seen by porous cinders, burnt marl, chalk, and quartz pebbles, all having sunk to the same depth within the same time. Considering the nature of the substratum, which at Leith Hill Place was sandy soil, including many bits of rock, and at Stonehenge, chalk rubble with broken flints, considering also the presence of the turf-covering sloping border of mould round the great fragments of stone at both these places, their sinking does not appear to have been sensibly aided by their weight, though this was considerable. Footnote. Mr. R. Mallet remarks, Quarterly Journal of the Geological Society, Volume 33, 1877, page 745, that, quote, the extent to which the ground beneath the foundations of ponderous architectural structures, such as cathedral towers, has been known to become compressed, is as remarkable as it is instructive and curious. The amount of depression in some cases may be measured by feet. End quote. He instances the Tower of Pisa, but adds that it was founded on quote, dense clay. End, quote. End of footnote. On the number of worms which live within a given space. We will now show, firstly, what a vast number of worms live unseen by us beneath our feet, and secondly, the actual weight of the earth which they bring up to the surface within a given space and within a given time. Henson, who has published so full and interesting an account of the habits of worms, footnote, Zeitschrift für Wissenschaft Zoologique, volume 28, 1877, page 360, end of footnote, calculates from the number which he found in a measured space that there must exist 133,000 living worms in a hectare of land, or 53,767 in an acre. This latter number of worms would weigh 356 pounds, taking Henson's standard of the weight of a single worm, namely 3 grams. It should, however, be noted that this calculation is founded on the numbers found in a garden, and Henson believes that worms are here twice as numerous as in cornfields. The above result, astonishing though it be, seems to me credible, judging from the number of worms which I have sometimes seen, and from the number daily destroyed by birds, without the species being exterminated. Some barrels of bad ale were left on Mr. Miller's land. Footnote. See Mr. Dancer's paper, in Proceedings of the Philosophical Society of Manchester, 1877, page 248. End of footnote. In the hope of making vinegar. But the vinegar proved bad, and the barrels were upset. It should be premised that acetic acid is so deadly a poison to worms that Perrier found that a glass rod dipped into this acid, and then into a considerable body of water, in which worms were immersed, invariably killed them quickly. On the morning after the barrels had been upset, quote, the heaps of worms which lay dead on the ground were so amazing that if Mr. Miller had not seen them, he could not have thought it possible for such numbers to have existed in the space. End quote. As further evidence of the large number of worms which live in the ground, Henson states that he found in a garden sixty-four open burrows in a space of fourteen and a half square feet, that is, nine in two square feet. But the burrows are sometimes much more numerous, for when digging in a grass field near Mare Hall, I found a cake of dry earth, as large as my two open hands, 
which was penetrated by seven burrows as large as goose quills. Weight of the earth ejected from a single burrow, and from all the burrows within a given space. With respect to the weight of the earth daily ejected by worms, Hansen found that it amounted, in the case of some worms which he kept in confinement, and which he appears to have fed with leaves, to only 0.5 gram, or less than 8 grains per diem. But a very much larger amount must be ejected by worms in their natural state, at the periods when they consume earth as food, instead of leaves, and when they are making deep burrows. This is rendered almost certain by the following weights of the castings thrown up at the mouths of single burrows, the whole of which appear to have been ejected within no long time, as was certainly the case in several instances. The castings were dried, excepting in one specified instance, by exposure during many days to the sun or before a hot fire. Weight of the castings accumulated at the mouth of a single burrow. 1. Down, Kent. Subsoil red clay full of flints overlying the chalk. The largest casting which I could find on the flanks of a steep valley, the subsoil being here shallow, and this one case the casting was not well dried. 3.98 ounces. 2. Down. Largest casting which I could find, consisting chiefly of calcareous material, on extremely poor pasture land, at the bottom of the valley mentioned under 1. 3.87 ounces. 3. Down. A large casting, but not of unusual size, from a nearly level field, poor pasture, laid down in grass about 35 years before. 1.22 ounces. 4. Average weight of 11 not large castings, ejected on a sloping surface on my lawn, after they had suffered some loss of weight from being exposed during a considerable length of time to rain. 0 0.7 ounces. 5. Near Nice in France, average weight of 12 castings of ordinary dimensions, collected by Dr. King, on land which had not been mown for a long time, and where worms abounded, viz. a lawn protected by shrubberies, near the sea, soil sandy and calcareous. These castings had been exposed for some time to rain, before being collected, and must have lost some weight by disintegration, but they still retained their form. 1.37 ounces. 6. The heaviest of the above twelve castings. 1.76 ounces. 7. Lower Bengal. Average weight of 22 castings, collected by Mr. J. Scott, and stated by him to have been thrown up in the course of one or two nights. 1.24 ounces. 8. The heaviest of the above 22 castings. 2.09 ounces. 9. Nilgiri Mountains, South India. Average weight of the five largest castings collected by Dr. King. They had been exposed to rain of the last monsoon, and must have lost some weight. 3.15 ounces. 10. The heaviest of the above five castings. 4.34 ounces. In this table, we see the castings which had been ejected at the mouth of the same burrow, and which in most cases appeared fresh, and always retained their vermiform configuration, generally exceeded an ounce in weight after being dried and sometimes nearly equaled a quarter of a pound. On the Nilgiri Mountains, one casting even exceeded this latter weight. The largest castings in England were found on extremely poor pasture land, 
and these, as far as I have seen, are generally larger than those on land producing a rich vegetation. It would appear that worms have to swallow a greater amount of earth on poor than on rich land, in order to obtain sufficient nutriment. With respect to the tower-like castings near Nice, numbers five and six in the above table, Dr. King often found five or six of them on a square foot of surface, and these, judging from their average weight, would have weighed together seven and a half ounces, so that the weight of those on a square yard would have been four pounds three and one-half ounces. Dr. King collected near the close of the year 1872 all the castings which still retained their vermiform shape, whether broken or not, from a square foot, in a place abounding with worms on the summit of a bank, where no castings could have rolled down from above. These castings must have been ejected, as he judged, from their appearance in reference to the rainy and dry periods near Nice, within the previous five or six months. They weighed nine and one-half ounces, or five pounds, five and one-half ounces per square yard. After an interval of four months, Dr. King collected all the castings subsequently ejected on the same square foot of surface, and they weighed two and one-half ounces, or one pound six and one-half ounces per square yard. Therefore, within about ten months, or we will say for safety's sake, within a year, twelve ounces of castings were thrown up on this one square foot, or 6.75 pounds, on the square yard, and this would give 14.58 tons per acre. In the field at the bottom of a valley in the chalk, see number two in the foregoing table, a square yard was measured at a spot where very large castings abounded. They appeared, however, almost equally numerous in a few other places. These castings, which retained perfectly their vermiform shape, were collected, and they weighed, when partially dried, one pound, thirteen and one-half ounces. This field had been rolled with a heavy agricultural roller fifty-two days before, and this would certainly have flattened every single casting on the land. The weather had been very dry for two or three weeks before the day of collection, so that not one casting appeared fresh or had been recently ejected. We may therefore assume that those which were weighed had been ejected within, we will say, forty days from the time when the field was rolled, that is, twelve days short of the whole intervening period. I had examined the same part of the field shortly before it was rolled, and it then abounded with fresh castings. Worms do not work in dry weather during the summer, or in winter during severe frosts. If we assume that they work for only half the year, though this is too low an estimate, then the worms in this field would eject during the year 8.387 pounds per square yard, or 18.12 tons per hectare, assuming the whole surface to be equally productive in castings. In the foregoing cases, some of the necessary data had to be estimated, but in the two following cases, the results are much more trustworthy. A lady, on whose accuracy I can implicitly rely, offered to collect during a year all the castings thrown up on two separate square yards near Leith Hill Place in Surrey. The amount collected was, however, somewhat less than that originally ejected by the worms, for, as I have repeatedly observed, a good deal of the finest earth is washed away whenever castings are thrown up during or shortly before heavy rain. Small portions also adhere to the surrounding blades of grass, 
and it required too much time to detach every one of them. On sandy soil, as in the present instance, castings are liable to crumble after dry weather, and the particles were thus often lost. The lady also occasionally left home for a week or two, and at such times the castings must have suffered still greater loss from exposure to the weather. These losses were, however, compensated to some extent by the collections having been made on one of the squares for four days, and on the other square for two days more than the year. A space was selected, October ninth, 1870, for one of the squares on a broad, grass-covered terrace, which had been mowed and swept during many years. It faced the south, but was shaded during part of the day by trees. It had been formed at least a century ago by a great accumulation of small and large fragments of sandstone, together with some sandy earth, rammed down level. It is probable that it was at first protected by being covered with turf. This terrace, judging from the number of castings on it, was rather unfavorable for the existence of worms, in comparison with the neighboring fields and an upper terrace. It was indeed surprising that as many worms could live here as were seen, for on digging a hole in this terrace, the black vegetable mold together with the turf was only four inches in thickness, beneath which lay the level surface of light-colored sandy soil with many fragments of sandstone. Before any castings were collected, all the previously existing ones were carefully removed. The last day's collection was on October 14, 1871. The castings were then well dried before a fire, and they weighed exactly three and one-half pounds. This would give for an acre of similar land 7.57 tons of dry earth annually ejected by worms. The second square was marked on unenclosed common land, at a height of about 700 feet above the sea, at some little distance from Leith Hill Tower. The surface was clothed with short, fine turf, and had never been disturbed by the hand of man. The spot selected appeared neither particularly favorable nor the reverse for worms, but I have often noticed that castings are especially abundant on common land, and this may, perhaps, be attributed to the poorness of the soil. The vegetable mold was here between three and four inches in thickness. As this spot was at some distance from the house where the lady lived, the castings were not collected at such short intervals of time as those on the terrace. Consequently, the loss of fine earth during rainy weather must have been greater in this than in the last case. The castings, moreover, were more sandy, and in collecting them during dry weather they sometimes crumbled into dust, and much was thus lost. Therefore, it is certain that the worms brought up to the surface considerably more earth than that which was collected. The last collection was made on October 27, 1871, i.e., 367 days after the square had been marked out and the surface cleared of all pre-existing castings. The collected castings, after being well dried, weighed 7.453 pounds, and this would give, for an acre of the same kind of land, 16.1 tons of annually ejected dry earth. Summary of the four foregoing cases. 1. Castings ejected near Nice within about a year collected by Dr. King, on a square foot of surface, calculated to yield per acre 14.58 tons. 2. Castings ejected during about 45 days on a square yard, in a field of poor pasture at the bottom of a large valley in the chalk, calculated to yield annually per acre 
18.12 tons. 3. Castings collected from a square yard on an old terrace at Leith Hill Place during 369 days, calculated to yield annually per acre 7.56 tons. 4. Castings collected from a square yard on Leith Hill Common during 367 days, calculated to yield annually per acre 16.1 tons. The thickness of the layer of mould, which castings ejected during a year would form if uniformly spread out. As we know from the last two cases in the above summary, the weight of the dried castings ejected by worms during a year on a square yard of surface, I wish to learn how thick a layer of ordinary mould this amount would form if spread uniformly over a square yard. The dry castings were therefore broken into small particles, and whilst being placed in a measure were well shaken and pressed down. Those collected on the terrace amounted to 124.77 cubic inches, and this amount, if spread out over a square yard, would make a layer of 0.09612 inch in thickness. Those collected on the common amounted to 197.56 cubic inches, and would make a similar layer 0.1524 inch in thickness. These thicknesses must, however, be corrected, for the triturated castings, after being well shaken down and pressed, did not make nearly so compact a mass as vegetable mould, though each separate particle was very compact. Yet mould is far from being compact, as is shown by the number of air bubbles which rise up when the surface is flooded with water. It is moreover penetrated by many fine roots. To ascertain approximately by how much ordinary vegetable mould would be increased in bulk by being broken up into small particles and then dried, a thin oblong block of somewhat argillaceous mould with the turf pared off was measured before being broken up, was well dried and again measured. The drying caused it to shrink by one-seventh of its original bulk, judging from exterior measurements alone. It was then triturated and partly reduced to powder, in the same manner as the castings had been treated, and its bulk now exceeded, notwithstanding shrinkage from drying, by one-sixteenth that of the original block of damp mould. Therefore, the above calculated thickness of the layer formed by the castings from the terrace, after having been damped and spread over a square yard, would have to be reduced by one-sixteenth, and this will reduce the layer to 0.09 of an inch, so that a layer 0.9 inch in thickness would be formed in the course of ten years. On the same principle, the casting from the common would make, in the course of a single year, a layer 0.1429 inch, or in the course of ten years, 1.429 inch in thickness. We may say in round numbers that the thickness in the former case would amount to nearly one inch, and in the second case to nearly one and one-half inch in ten years. In order to compare these results with those deduced from the rates at which small objects left on the surfaces of grass fields become buried, as described in the early part of this chapter, we will give the following summary. Summary of the thickness of the mold accumulated over objects left strewed on the surface in the course of ten years. The accumulation of mold during fourteen and three-quarter years on the surface of a dry, sandy grass field near Mare Hall amounted to 2.2 inches in ten years. The accumulation during twenty-one and a half years on a swampy field near Mare Hall amounted to nearly 1.9 inch in ten years. The accumulation during seven years 
on a very swampy field near Mare Hall, amounted to 2.1 inches in 10 years. The accumulation during 29 years on good argillaceous pasture land over the chalk at Down amounted to 2.2 inches in 10 years. The accumulation during 30 years on the side of a valley over the chalk at Down, the soil being argillaceous, very poor, and only just converted into pasture, so that it was for some years unfavorable for worms, amounted to 0 0.83 inches in 10 years. In these cases, excepting the last, it may be seen that the amount of earth brought to the surface during 10 years is somewhat greater than that calculated from the castings which were actually weighed. This excess may be partly accounted for by the loss which the weighed castings had previously undergone through being washed by rain, by the adhesion of particles to the blades of the surrounding grass, and by their crumbling when dry. Nor must we overlook other agencies, which in all ordinary cases add to the amount of mould, and which would not be included in the castings that were collected, namely, the fine earth brought up to the surface by burrowing larvae and insects, especially by ants. The earth brought up by moles generally has a somewhat different appearance from vegetable mould, but after a time would not be distinguishable from it. In dry countries, moreover, the wind plays an important part in carrying dust from one place to another, and even in England it must add to the mould on fields near great roads. But in our country these latter several agencies appear to be of quite subordinate importance in comparison with the action of worms. We have no means of judging how great a weight of earth a single full-sized worm ejects during a year. Henson estimates that 53,767 worms exist in an acre of land. But this is founded on the number found in gardens, and he believes that only about half as many live in cornfields. How many live in old pasture land is unknown, but if we assume that half the above number, or 26,886 worms, live on such land, then taking from the previous summary 15 tons as the weight of the castings annually thrown up on an acre of land, each worm must annually eject 20 ounces. A full-sized casting at the mouth of a single burrow often exceeds, as we have seen, an ounce in weight, and it is probable that worms eject more than 20 full-sized castings during a year. If they eject annually more than 20 ounces, we may infer that the worms which live in an acre of pasture land must be less than 26,886 in number. Worms live chiefly in the superficial mold, which is usually from 4 to 5 to 10 or even 12 inches in thickness, and it is this mold which passes over and over again through their bodies and is brought to the surface. But worms occasionally burrow into the subsoil to a much greater depth, and on such occasions they bring up earth from this greater depth, and this process has gone on for countless ages. Therefore, the superficial layer of mould would ultimately attain, though at a slower and slower rate, a thickness equal to the depth to which worms ever burrow, were there not other opposing agencies at work, which carry away to a lower level some of the finest earth which is continually being brought to the surface by worms. How great a thickness vegetable mould ever attains, I have not had good opportunities for observing, but in the next chapter, when we consider the burial of ancient buildings, some facts will be given on this head. In the two last chapters, we shall see that the soil is actually increased, though only to a small degree, through the agency of worms. But their chief work is to sift the finer from the coarser particles, 
to mingle the whole with vegetable debris and to saturate it with their intestinal secretions. Finally, no one who considers the facts given in this chapter on the burying of small objects and on the sinking of great stones left on the surface, on the vast number of worms which live within a moderate extent of ground, on the weight of the castings ejected from the mouth of the same burrow, on the weight of all the castings ejected within a known time on a measured space, will hereafter, as I believe, doubt that worms play an important part in nature. End of chapter 3